Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing postmenopausal bleeding. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back. My name is uh, Jamie. I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. Uh, welcome back, Anna. Thank you. Uh, so uh, this podcast is a post-menopausal bleeding uh, podcast, and Anna once again joins down here in Dream to lend her expert tease. Um, so um, first question, Anna: What is the definition of post-menopausal bleeding? And I'm guessing it's bleeding after the menopause. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Might try and uh, beef it up a little bit. So um, I suppose you have to say, well, what is then the menopause? Mm. Um, and the menopause is defined as the period... So basically a lady that hasn't had any menstruation for more than a year. Okay. Um, and the average age for that in the UK is about 51-ish. Okay. Um, if someone was younger than that and they hadn't had a menstruation in more than a year, then you might start thinking about doing some blood tests to confirm if it is in fact menopause or if in fact something else is going on. Okay. Um, but yeah, generally, I think bleeding after the menopause is uh, probably the definition of postmenopausal bleeding, which of course is always abnormal. You never expect anyone to have any vaginal bleeding after the menopause has taken place. So immediately, that's a good learning point. It's this is always going to be pathological then, or uh, some, something not quite right then. Yeah. Something not right. Exactly. Okay. I'm curious now. What What's the youngest lady you've ever seen going through, or had, who was who had been through the menopause? Twenties, um, but we don't call it menopause then. You see, because oh. we call it premature ovarian failure. So anyone oh. that's less than thirty-five, who's yeah. um, whose uh, menstruation has stopped, and obviously we do blood tests to confirm that was the case. Um, then, yeah, premature ovarian mm. failure, you'd call it. She was an infertility patient, in fact, which is always... Oh, that's sad. Anyway, we digress. We are digressing. Uh, So, uh, back to postmenopausal bleeding. Um, So you said that, you know, it shouldn't happen. You shouldn't bleed after your menopause. Um, So what are the potential causes, then, that that immediately spring to your mind when you you hear postmenopausal bleeding? So um, the first thing that always comes to everyone's mind is that this is a cancer. So... um, and it could be a cancer of any part, essentially, of the, the genital tract, so the upper or lower genital tract. Um, the most common one that people think about is endometrial cancer, and that's because probably it is the most common present. It's probably the most common cancer to present with postmenopausal bleeding. But we have to think about other cancers like ovarian cancer, um, because ovarian cancers sometimes can secrete estrogens, which stimulate the endometrium to um, kind of. Uh, to shed in a similar way to if someone was having their natural periods, um, but that's not terribly common. Um, cervical cancer um, or vulval cancer, uh, or even rarer still, so we're going in <laughs> down in uh, in uh, likelihood now is vaginal cancer. So basically anything of the lower uh, or upper genital tract, um, and then there are other things that are more benign. Um, so they can be things like endometrial or cervical polyps, so just benign overgrowths and they're more, more prone to bleeding. Um, or you can have precursors to endometrial cancer, so we call that endometrial hyperplasia, um, the treatment of which we can we can talk about later. Um, but they, um, again, technically benign conditions, but if you left them, then they might develop into endometrial cancer. And then the last thing is... Um, 
conditions that cause basically thinning of the lower genital tract, so the vagina or the vulva, so it makes, makes the skin kind of more prone to bleeding. We'd call that atrophic vaginitis, which is essentially a condition of the po- a, a postmenopausal woman where there's lacking estrogen because mm. of menopause, um, and so the tissues become thinner, more prone to bleeding. And is the uh, is atrophic vaginitis the most common cause then of um, postmenopausal bleeding? Yeah, so overall, of all women presenting with postmenopausal bleeding, then that's the most common cause. Um, but is often kind of um, identified. It's not a diagnosis of exclusion. You can say you can identify that you know there's atrophy uh, by examining the patient. Um, but you'd want to rule out other serious causes before you put it down just to it being atrophic vaginitis, for example. Okay. Um, so, uh, what questions should we be asking then in, in our histories as we're, we're clerking in a, a patient, uh, we're seeing them in clinic or wherever with uh, postmenopausal bleeding? So, um, going through like a standard kind of structure of a history really, we obviously want to know how old she is. Um, it's probably quite important, or it sounds a bit silly, to check that she is actually menopausal. Like, Makes sense. As in, by yeah. definition, because yeah. I've had patients that come and they're technically not postmenopausal, you know, maybe their last menstrual period was six months ago or something. They might be perimenopausal, still might need to be investigated, but technically not postmenopausal bleeding. Um, we should be asking them about, you know, how, obviously how long the symptoms have been going on for, how much bleeding she's noticed, um, if she's had anything like this before, and if so, how was it investigated, what was the cause um, of it at that time. Um, if she's had um, anything like it before then, and there was a diagnosis, how was it treated? Mm. Um, and then we want to know about risk factors for the particular cancers as well. So thinking about cervical cancer, we want to know if she's had her smears, how are they up to date and have they been normal. Um, we want to know if she's had um, children before, so women that have had no children are at higher risk of having endometrial and ovarian cancer, important to know. Um, you might ask her when she started her periods and when her menopause was, so having um, a, a long period of menstruation, so um, early menarche and late menopause are again other risks for um, endometrial cancer. Um, what else do you want to know? Kind of general kind of past medical history as well, so certain conditions predispose someone to endometrial cancer, so things like diabetes. Um, that's kind of part of like a metabolic kind of syndrome sort mm. of thing. So we need to know about that. Um, and obviously that's important to know if we then think <coughs> about doing a, an operation, for example, we need to know about any comorbidities and how that might affect if she potentially needs an anaesthetic for any reason. Um, I would like to know, um, going back to what I said about having children, if she has had children, how were they born? Um, if somebody has had normal deliveries in the past, um, often the cervix is kind of a bit open already it makes it a lot easier for us sometimes to think about taking biopsies from the endometrium if someone's had either no children or they've only had cesarean sections then that's what we need to know that if we're going to take a biopsy you know the cervix might be a little bit more tightly closed it might mean that if we end up having to um, do an operation you know we need to know that she's had lots of cesarean so that's helpful to know in the long term um, what else do we need to know? In general, kind of other parts of history, I suppose, that you would like to take for anybody. So you mentioned that uh, being nulliparous is a, is a risk factor for endometrial cancer. <coughs> Does that mean your risk decreases with every 
pregnancy you've had or is, is that a bit out um, there? It's just because endometrial cancer specifically is the risk is heightened kind of the more exposure you've had to unopposed oestrogen. So it's that break of oestrogen that you've yeah. had for nine months? Yeah, well at least it's not really, it's just not unopposed because okay. you've got lots of progesterone mm. um, at, the, at the time of pregnancy, so okay. it's not unopposed oestrogen. And so I suppose technically, yeah, the more pregnancies you have, <laughs> the more protected that you would be, but I don't know the actual figures to... We're not endorsing no. being pregnant ten times in order no, to, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so... That's our history. What um, examination should we then perform? Um, so, as with anything gynaecological, it's always important to start with an abdominal examination, partly because we don't want to kind of jump in and do intimate examination before we've uh, even done anything else touching the patient. And also because we want to know if there's any, um, any masses that we can feel in the abdomen. So, for example, related to a, a large uterus or an ovarian mass that we can feel um, abdominally. Um, and then we need to go on and do um, a speculum examination and a vaginal examination. Um, when we do a speculum examination, we're looking, before we even put the speculum in, looking at the vulva, checking its health, making sure that there isn't any kind of abnormal lumps or bumps, alterations that might suggest a vulval cancer. Um, always make sure that you check the lower parts of the vagina as well, just in case there is a very rare kind of uh, cancer in the lower part of the vagina. Um, we put the speculum in, we want to examine the state of the cervix, make sure that again there's no cancer, but also if there's any benign conditions like a cervical polyp, then that can predispose to bleeding. Um, and also the upper vagina, for the similar reasons I've mentioned before, we want to inspect that as well and make sure it looks healthy. Um, we're going to be looking all that time to see if there's any evidence of atrophy of these tissues, which might go along with our diagnosis of atrophic vaginitis. Um, when we've kind of got the speculum in, the next thing that we would often do is think about taking a biopsy from the endometrium. Because we want to rule out endometrial cancer, mm. we are often doing this, and it would be the right time to do that when you, you've got the speculum in. We call this an endometrial propel biopsy. So some people might have seen that done when they've been like, in their obstetrics attachment. It's essentially a small straw that we pass uh, through the cervix into the uterus. It's only like a couple of millimetres in diameter. So patients might complain of a bit of period discomfort, but most people kind of tolerate it quite well. Um, there's a plunger inside this straw, which then creates a vacuum. So then basically we can draw some of the endometrial tissue um, and we can send that off. So it kind of gives us a quick biopsy basically of the, of the endometrium. Mm. Let us know what we're dealing with. Um, after we've done that, we can then do a vaginal examination, um, which will tell us the size of the uterus, if you know, it's enlarged by fibroids, for example, um, or if there was other masses with the uterus, um, and if there's any adnexal ovarian masses. Um, that would, I think, complete probably most of the examination we want to do, postmenopausal bleeding. Okay. And are there any um, other investigations that are required that you would hope that were done for all of your patients coming in with this? Yeah, so... Um, there are kind of one-stop clinics, actually, where, like, everything basically is done. Like in one Love the special clinic. Uh, so, and it's, it's, it's pretty common, actually. But Good. We, uh, so there is one-stop clinic. Um, but I'd expect a patient to have had some kind of baseline blood tests, um, it, a full blood count, you know, if she's been bleeding, probably check her, ur uh, her user knees if she's been bleeding a lot, or um, and maybe other blood tests if necessary, depending on what her comorbidities are. Um, We've already mentioned that they're doing the propel biopsy, which we would have done as kind of part of the examination. Um, 
and an ultrasound scan. So in these one-stop clinics where we deal with these women, um, an ultrasound scan would kind of be done before they came in to do into the consultation. Then okay. They've done a scan and then they come Excellent. in and see the, the consultant or the registrar. Um, again, to look for any masses, of yeah. course, but also to have a look at the endometrial thickness. Mm. So in a postmenopausal woman, you would expect the endometrial thickness to be about four millimetres or less. Okay. If the endometrial thickness is more than that, then that might suggest that there's either endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial malignancy, mm. um, and so would you know definitely need to be investigated by way of the biopsy that mm. I described. Okay. So this one-stop clinic sounds just like the the breast clinics where you know you get your mammogram uh, and you're examined and if possible a biopsy as well, all yeah. under one roof. I mean, so yeah, and so that's the you know, ideal situation. But you, you might, and also potentially get a bit of an idea of what's going on yeah and um, we might not be able to give a definitive diagnosis obviously you might be waiting on the biopsy that would then take all some time to come back mm. um, the other thing that we sometimes do in these clinics is uh, outpatient hysteroscopy so if the endometrial thickness was raised um, or if we had you know a lot of risk factors or something or maybe it was difficult to do the pipel biopsy uh, we can do an outpatient hysteroscopy um, which again most people tolerate kind of quite well we just put a small telescope into the uterus and have a look with our then on the camera at what the endometrial looks like and then we can take a biopsy um, from that so with my A&E hat on all of this is sounding very outpatient-y so unless so you know unless my lady with postmenopausal bleeding is hemodynamically unstable and hemorrhaging a lot, obviously, they're, yeah. they're not going home. This all sounds like speaking a bit to the, the team, making sure they will be followed up in yeah. clinic, and then but dis, dis, discharging doesn't need, to, as long, you know, as I said, as long as they're not hemorrhaging and hemodynamically unstable, this all sounds like outpatient stuff. Yeah, and the vast majority of people <coughs> with postmenopausal bleeding are not doing what you described. They're actually probably not bleeding actually that heavily. Um, some actually are, and I've seen that a few times, but most of them can be dealt with as an outpatient. Most of the women that we see um, will come through to us from their GP on a two-week wait. Okay. Um, so you mentioned about uh, biopsy. Uh, is that therefore going to be the, the cornerstone of how endometrial cancer is diagnosed? Uh, yeah, pretty much. So ultrasound and biopsy. Yeah. Um, if we can't get a biopsy, then doing a hysteroscopy. Yeah. If we can't do that as an outpatient, then an inpatient hysteroscopy and biopsy will be done, and that that basically will make most of the diagnosis. Okay. Um, from there, we'd then go on, obviously, via the MDT, uh, talking about uh, doing a staging CT scan. We also would do um, an MRI scan of the pelvis in order to know. Um, the tube, if the tumour in the endometrium was likely confined to the endometrium or if it, in fact it had started to kind of spread within the uterus or, or spread locally or of course if there had been distant metastases then that's all important then to planning how we deal with, with that particular patient. Okay. And what if um, endometrial hyperplasia is found then? So what, what's the management plan uh, for these ladies? Yeah, so um, it depends on the type of endometrial hyperplasia that we find. Um, we can divide it into someone that has simple endometrial hyperplasia, or it can be complex. And then, depending on the, uh, the histology, will tell us whether or not yeah, the cell type is typical or if they're atypical. So, 
the best case scenario of hyperplasia is that you have simple hyperplasia with no atypia. And those patients, the chance of that progressing on to endometrial malignancy is really very small, so probably only about 3% or something. Um, and some of that it will, may get better actually, in fact, on its own. Um, and in that case, um, and you know, if you had complex hyperplasia with no atypia or simple with atypia, all of those can be dealt with by giving the woman progesterone. Um, because we, we always say progesterone is quite protective of the endometrium. Um, it's the unopposed estrogens that's the problem. So we give the patient progesterone, that may be either a tablet uh, or we can place a Mirena coil sometimes. Um, and that basically helps the hyperplasia there you know, basically regress. Hmm. Um, so is that like the progesterone only pill then that a yeah. young lady would take? Yeah, yeah. exactly the same. Oh, okay. um, you know, women who take the progesterone only pill, if you did a scan of her uh, endometrium, her endometrium would be incredibly thin. Okay. Like atrophied basically. Um, and that's how it works, which is why most people on progesterone only pill don't have any periods. Mm. We digress again. We're digressing, but learning still, so it's <laughs> always good. <laughs> um, so, I've forgotten what I was saying. Yes, so the progesterone. If uh, there's a, one type of hyperplasia, however, which is managed differently, and that's complex hyperplasia with atopia, yes. and those patients are essentially managed the same as someone with endometrial cancer, that's because there's a much higher chance of them progressing on to endometrial mm. cancer. And also, there's a 30% chance that actually endometrial cancer coexists with the complex atypical, atypical hyperplasia mm. when you actually then look at the, the hysterectomy specimen. Okay. okay. So they would basically go on in the same way as the endometrial cancer to have hysterectomy, essentially, okay. um, and ho- with the hope that that would then be curative. Mm. Okay. And um, I suppose if you're counselling a lady who's postmenopausal for a hysterectomy, it's different to somebody who's premenopausal. Then I suppose you, they've already gone through the menopause. It's not quite the same. Uh, yeah, I mean, we don't have to obviously worry about telling them about the long-term need for HRT, for example, if mm. um, they'll have a hysterectomy. If we're going to do a hysterectomy for an endometrial cancer, we'll also take the ovaries and tubes, so it will be a total abdominal hysterectomy, bilateral self-injury hysterectomy. But yeah, you don't need to, like, counsel them about future <laughs> needs for children or, um, you know, HRT, because they've already gone through the menopause, so you know, that's not relevant. Okay, um, and then so um, if we're on to uh, you mentioned atrophic vaginitis being the most common, so if we we're happy that the the, the endometrium is fine, uh, how do we go about uh, treating um, atrophic vaginitis? So then, well, it's not a dangerous thing; it's more of just an annoyance that the patient would have. So we could then discuss with the patient about what she wanted to do. If she actually felt that you know she'd had very minimal bleeding um, and it had stopped, and we were happy that everything else was fine. She doesn't have to have any treatment if she doesn't want, um, but we can give them kind of a topical HRT, so by the way of um, estrogen pessaries or estrogen cream, um, that's get, so given basically topically to the vagina, which would basically just help um, boost the estrogen in those tissues and make them less, a little bit less prone to bleeding. Is there a, an advantage, one versus the other, for a cream versus a pessary, or is it just up to the patient? One's less messy. <laughs> so is that is that the only difference? <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, so I suppose key point, as we talked at the beginning, this uh, postmenopausal bleeding should set off a few red flags, get you thinking. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's never normal yeah. to have bleeding after the menopause. It should therefore always be investigated. 
um, but the vast majority of patients who have it don't actually have a sinister diagnosis, but we shouldn't be ruling out the sinister diagnoses. Um, I don't think I said before, but of all women with postmenopausal bleeding, about 10% have endometrial cancer. Okay. So it's actually not, not most of them by any stretch, but we need to rule that out as like the, the most diagnosis. And also we, um, we have to make sure we're doing a thorough examination to make sure we're not missing kind of other cancers of the lower genital tract. Um, yeah, but otherwise, that's it. That's it. Thank you, Anna. That was the Take Orally Postmenopausal Bleeding Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we'll put up links to any guidelines mentioned, and you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine, and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.